Well, I want to begin with you in the text of God, so I'd ask you to take your Bible, please. And I'd like you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew with me, please. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at the Lord Jesus this morning, even as we did in the Scripture reading. We'll begin at the beginning of the chapter. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. This particular account is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the shortest of the three accounts, giving evidence that Matthew's gospel is the first gospel written. Can I get an amen from the Synoptic Choir? And this account, being the shortest, is also, though, it carries all the essential points that all the other gospel accounts have, even though they give us a bunch of details. One of the great things that comes through in this account is the unique strength of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not my main point in the sermon. I just want to introduce it this way to ask you to just marvel at the strength of Jesus Christ. He is declaring God's words, and of course, he's being contradicted and he's being assailed, and yet he has no fear. And in this, of all the men who have ever lived, all the prophets of God, all the servants of the gospel over all the centuries, Jesus Christ is unique in this. He doesn't get scared or fearful when he is contradicted by men. So let's compare him for a moment to one of the greatest men through history who has ever spoken the word of God, Martin Luther. Martin Luther. He was requested by the entire Roman Empire and by the Pope himself to make it to a town where he lived, what we now call Germany. It was the town of Worms. It's actually written Worms, but it's Worms in the year 1521. Now the Pope and all of his men wanted Luther to recant for his teachings that the forgiveness of God came entirely by the declared word of God alone, and not by the actions of a man, not by the actions of a person's soul. And Martin Luther preached that everywhere, and he wrote about it, and his, his works sold back in that day like huge volumes. Everybody was buying them and discussing them, that he taught that men could be declared forgiven of all their sins merely by the word of God. The Roman Catholic priests taught then, and they teach today, that forgiveness from God comes only through men meriting 
forgiveness by deeds of repentance. Luther's trip from Wittenberg to Worms was a victory march. He was enthusiastically welcomed in every city that he passed through. Crowds met him on the road. He was invited into the churches where he preached his gospel. And when he arrived in Worms on April 16th, he was cheered and welcomed by the people in that city. Day after day, Luther stood before hundreds, magistrates, judges, officials, priests, two times a day, having to answer the questions of highly skilled debaters, always looking to trip him up. On the last day, when Luther was convicted of heresy, he famously said in great human strength this, famous words, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. But what is forgotten was Luther's weakness. For the day before, he had been asked the very same question. Would he recant of his teachings? And he quaked and he shivered. He was frightened. He felt sick inside. And he almost recanted the day before of his teachings that God declares men forgiven by the word of the gospel. So he asked to have leave so that he could have the night to think it over. And he did not sleep that night. And in his great fear and in his great weakness, God met him and strengthened him for his next day's speech. He was a regular man like you and me. But this is, in the word of God, different. This is our Jesus Christ, who never ever before any council or group of religious men expresses any fear or shrinking back from declaring the word of God. There is no weakness in this man. The only time he ever shows any kind of shrinking is that he might sin by not going to the cross. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays three times that he would not do so. That's the only fear he had was that he might in his humanity sin. Never ever do we see any fear of man in him. But instead, in a passage like this, we see him saying the most astounding thing that any man on earth, on God's green earth, can ever say and declare forgiveness for someone else. And by doing so, now what you have in this passage is Jesus himself rescuing a man out who is trapped in a religious system. It is a religious system that has the man bound and judged and from which he is unable to extricate himself. I want to divide it up quickly with you. We'll just look at the setting. We'll look at the people there and we'll look at the drama. First, the setting of this passage. Go back to verse 1 with me, please. You'll see that he came to his own city. 
According to Mark's gospel, Jesus is coming back from a preaching tour to the city of Capernaum. The people are excited there. Mark's gospel describes it that this was news. It was heard that he was in the house in Mark's gospel. So everybody's talking about the latest event. Jesus has come back from a preaching tour, and he is in the house. So everybody gets together at the house. It quite possibly, by the way, is Peter's mother-in-law's house. Well, what about Nazareth? Wasn't that Jesus' city? Well, yes, that's the one he grew up in, but you might remember that's the city that hated him. And they tried, after he preached in their synagogue, to take him out to the brow of a hill and push him off in order to kill him. So the city now of his home base for ministry for the three years is going to be this city of Capernaum. As such, it is far away from the theological, political hotspot of the country, Jerusalem, which if you were any kind of a pragmatic man, you would choose Jerusalem as the base of a world-changing ministry, not some little backwater called Capernaum. It wasn't even centrally located It didn't even have a high population. So why would Jesus go there? Well, listen to me read a little passage from a few chapters earlier in Mark 4. It says here in verse 13 that Jesus was leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Therefore, Jesus went there to fulfill Scripture out of the book of Isaiah. He went there to fulfill Scripture so that the people would see a great light. It is that great light that we study this morning in that passage. Jesus moved to Capernaum to set up ministry central for the Son of God's ministry on earth so that the people there would see light. Okay, let's move on. Who are the people there? Well, this is surprising. Would you look at verse 3? Some of the scribes said to themselves, this is surprising. Scribes in Capernaum? That is unusual indeed. If you would, keep your finger here, but go over to Matthew chapter, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 5 over to Luke's account of this passage. Have you ever stood on top of a hill as you make your way to Luke 5? Have you ever stood on top of a hill overlooking a body of water, say a large lake, and you can see it from tip to tip and side to side? You can do that with the Sea of Galilee. You can stand on Mount Arbel. Anybody been to Mount Arbel? Anybody been over there? You have. Great. You can stand on top of Mount Arbel. You can see virtually all of the Sea of Galilee. I've been on top of it a couple of times. And there in the upper left-hand corner sits a sleepy little village of really no reason called Capernaum. It's a fishing village back in this day. It's not any kind of particular village that might take notice, except that it has a large central synagogue. But beyond that, it's just Capernaum. It's just a small 
little city. People don't go to Capernaum. There's nothing interesting there. And that makes it all the more strange if you'll join me in verse 17. Same story, by the way, just Luke's version. One day he was teaching, and there were some scribes and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Verse 18, and some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. Same scenario, right? Same scene, same setting. What's interesting here is that Luke tells you that there are not just scribes there, but there are also Pharisees. And he uses the word teachers of the law. Those were the scribes, very important men in Israel. They made official rulings on the hard cases. They were men who used the Bible a little, used the writings of the Jews a lot. And what it says here is so interesting that in verse 17, that they were from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. This was not a few men gathered here, was it? The only explanation why they would be then in the sleepy little town of Capernaum that sits on the tip of the Sea of Galilee would be that this is an official delegation of men who have come up there in order to investigate and to render judgment on the ministry and teachings of the rabbi Jesus in Capernaum. They understand that this is his ministry central, and so they are there now to debate Jesus. They are there to judge Jesus, and then to take their judgment and to make a recommendation on that judgment down to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. I want to remind you that Jesus knew who these individuals were a little later in his ministry. He said this about them, these scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 23, The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a single finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Men are all about rule setting, rule keeping, judging other people. That's how they live. They are vast and syncretic hypocrites. So picture a home in your mind with these men in it dressed appropriately in period garb with their phylacteries on their foreheads and their tassels wrapped around their forearms, having this theological back and forth with Jesus in this home. These men have come to Capernaum. They know it is Jesus' city. They've come to catch the famous rabbi in error and sin. But this is not a man who hides from such people. He confronts and deliberates with them. Okay, establishing who's there. There's a couple more groups we need to get besides the scribes and Pharisees in order to flesh it out. 
Now, sort of in the background of this is the crowd. Look at verse 19 here. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with the stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So now picture even more people in this house. And then lastly, the last group here is the four men carrying a paralytic on a queen-sized, sealy posturepedic into the home. Now, back in those days, the houses had uh, stairways up on the side of the house. You would walk up those stairways, get on the roof, in order to catch like an afternoon breeze because it would get hot. And the houses were made back in that day with wooden joists in the ceiling, but then mud was placed in between. When it dried, it formed a pretty good seal. So what these men do is they get up on the roof. They're standing up there. It's made to be strong. They start digging through the clay clumps and clusters of this stuff, and they clear out a spot in between some of the joists, and they're able to let down their their friend. And so lastly, let's look at this guy, the paralytic. A couple things we need to make observation of concerning him. The first thing that you need to know about this man, it's important to the story, is what's in verse 18. Do you notice there it says a man who was paralyzed? The uh, verb tense tells us that this was a man who at one time was not paralyzed. Maybe he'd had a work accident. And now he was permanently paralyzed. So he wasn't born paralyzed. And if you are a scribe, You are thinking to yourself, this paralytic has been punished by God. And you're wondering to yourself, what did this man do to make God punish him like that? Well, it really doesn't matter. He must be a sinner. And one other thing about the paralytic, he had faith in Christ to be healed. And that is no small achievement. If he didn't, he wouldn't have allowed his friends to stick him on the mattress or on the bed or whatever it was that they had. He would have been yelling, put me down, put me down. When they had been digging through the roof, he would have been too embarrassed to be put down in front of these men. His own disability being put on display for the scribes, the Pharisees, and the crowds. Thank you very much. He would have said, no, don't do it, and they would not have done it. And one other thing. Taking the context here, they are probably coming from some distance away because they want the miracle now. In other words, they're not coming from within the town of Capernaum. They've come and they have to get the healing now, not tomorrow, not the next day, because they've probably come to get the healing and then hope to make it back to hometown by dark. But they knew where to go. They went to Capernaum. I can't tell you. I don't know if you've had the same experience or not. You ever heard this passage preached as if the reason for why it was written was to talk about the four men carrying the guy? (laughs) One is, I've heard it this way, one is named Compassion. One of the other men is called Love. One of the four men is called Love and the other is called Planning, Execution. And they become the heroes of the story and now the 
story of the four men becomes an exhortation to you and me to be about the business of evangelism. And uh, kind of gets left behind in the story. Oh, yeah, Jesus, you know, he forgives the guy. Kind of like, well, yeah, that's what, that's what Jesus does. No big deal. But the big story here is the four guys who bring the guy, the paralytic, to Jesus. That's not the point of the story at all. That's not the point of the story at all. We'll get there. All right. Third, let's dig into the drama. Are you ready? Go back to Matthew chapter 9 with me, please. Let's dig into the drama. Here it is. begins right away in verse 2. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. This is declarative forgiveness. This is forgiveness that comes by the declared word of Jesus Christ. How awesome is this? How freeing to this man. How wonderful, how precious to be declared forgiven. Now to understand just how powerful this is, we need to hear what Jesus' words sounded like to the scribes. Now, the Judaism of that day taught God does not forgive sin with declarative forgiveness. No, you have to earn forgiveness. And the key word was repentance. Only the properly repentant could be forgiven by God. Now, listen. Repentance was twisted. Repentance was not a heart turning away from the love of self to God and to honoring him in worship. No, repentance is something you did. It was a deed. It was an action, like fasting or giving money. And the deeds of Repentance for various sins was established by the scribes. For example, the Mishnah and the Talmud, both of those Jewish writings that authoritatively tell Jews how to interpret the scriptures, they both taught that God holds an annual judgment every year of every Jew between New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and between the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, total of seven days, the Talmud taught that there are three books that God opens to evaluate every single living Jew. There is the book of life. These are those who are good enough. They're in like Flynn. They're good. There is the book of death in which all the wicked people's names are entered. They don't stand a chance. And then there is what I'll call a book of suspense for these people who they call the intermediates. These are the people who had seven days to repent and to do repentance in order to make the scale of God tip down in their favor. They taught that God loves to see men do deeds of repentance. So during those seven days between New Year's and the Day of Atonement, you wanted to clear up any quarrels that you had with anybody. You wanted to pay off any debts. You wanted to make apologies where necessary. And if you fasted between New Year's 
in the Day of Atonement, God automatically forgave one-third of all your sins. One rabbi even said, May the diminishing of my fat and blood be regarded as if I offered them upon your altar. In other words, by fasting, he reduced his fat and blood, and therefore God was so happy with him. But the point is this. You had to merit forgiveness. And the paralyzed man, from the scribe's perspective, was more needy of doing deeds of repentance than anybody else. Pretty harsh, right? Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy teach the same hellish errors today. Repentance is a work to be done. Once you do the work, you can go take the Mass. Before you can be forgiven for your sins, you must work a good work. Venial sins. You must say the right prayer, burn a candle, fast a little bit, give some money, apologize. If you have mortal sins, they require big deeds of repentance. And they claim you can only do and accept forgiveness if you merit it before God. You have a, only a merit-based forgiveness before God. Do your good works merit forgiveness? The answer is yes, if you can do the repentance according to Roman Catholicism and orthodoxy. It is all a formula. Only some of the details are changed from what these men were in the text. It all comes from the pit of hell. It opposes the declarative forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ, which is acceptance with God, that forgiveness of sins is not based on attaining it through meritorious deeds, but it comes directly by declaration. Look back at verse 2 again. Here it is. Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Question for you. Is Jesus saying that only some of the man's sins are forgiven? No. He's saying all of them are forgiven. Notice what he says there. He says, take courage, son. There's nothing to take courage of if you only have partial forgiveness of your sins. You go off and sin again. You're not forgiven. There's nothing to take courage of. The guy might go off and sin worse than he did before. No, listen, this man is still lying on a stretcher in front of everybody. And he is 100% forgiven forever by the declared forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, the teachers of Roman Catholicism and the teachers of Orthodoxy get very upset when you claim to have a declarative forgiveness from God. This offends them to the core of their souls. Their religious systems lock people in cages of which they alone hold the keys. And they hate, I repeat, 
They hate declarative forgiveness. Just like the scribes. Look at verse 3. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. All right. They didn't say this fellow blasphemes. That is a weird, weird trend. If you're going to say somebody's blaspheming, you wouldn't use the word fellow. Just making a tease of our translation here. In fact, you'll notice, I don't know how your translation has it. They don't use any word to name Jesus. It's like you can't use a word to describe him in their thinking. He's too bad. He's too vile. He's too awful. So it's just this blasphemes. Fellow just is there to make you giggle at what they chose for translation. Rabbi Ishmael, back in these days of this account, taught that there were four classes of sins with different repentances necessary to be forgiven of three of the classes of sins. So all sins could be forgiven except for one class of sin. And Rabbi Ishmael taught that one class of sin for which a man cannot be forgiven is blasphemy. So when these scribes, understanding this, of course, say in their hearts, this man blasphemes, they are saying he is an unforgivable man who has just declared the forgiveness of God upon the paralytic. So in the eyes of the scribes, Jesus is a blasphemer. He can't be forgiven. And this charge eventually of blasphemy is going to lead to his death. And here's what's so interesting. Jesus actually hears what these men are thinking in their own private hearts. And he doesn't get all weak when he hears what they're saying about him. It's amazing. So he does two amazing things because he knows their inner hearts. Look at verse 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts. By the way, that's the gift of prophecy. Woman at the well, after Jesus said, uh, yeah, you've had five husbands and the man you're with right now is not your husband. She said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The prophet from God can discern the heart. Jesus here is able to read their hearts. He hears what they're thinking. Jesus is able to look into men's hearts, which I think is a pretty filthy business, but he's looking and knows everything. He knows what the motive is for why you do what you do, why you think what you think. But of course, with us, he looks for faith. He rewards that. So first, he knows their inner thoughts, but instead of quaking, getting scared at them, fearful that maybe they're right, In humility and meekness, he presents to the men a question that is so perfectly designed for them. A merit-based question that totally works with how they think about religion and how they think about God and forgiveness. A merit-based question. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, which is easier? Now I want to stop there before I go on to talk about the word easier for a minute because this is critical to you kind of catching the merit-based issue here in the text. The word easier, you eukopoderon, is from the root word kapiao for work, hard work, labor work. And it's a comparative that puts together three pieces into one word. Good, work, less. 
which we just interpret easier, easier. But really what it means is less work. That's the actual meaning of the word. So I want to read verse 5 with you, but I want to replace the word easier with the word less work, okay? So join me back in verse 5. Which is less work? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now you can understand the brilliance of Jesus Christ here. Now, in order to maybe illustrate this for you, let's invite Benny Hinn to come up on the platform with me and ask Benny, Benny, which is less work? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up, take your bed and walk? Benny, religious quack that he is, answers wrong. He would say, oh, to say your sins are forgiven is harder. So let's invite John Calvin to come up also. And let's ask Jean what the answer to the question is. Which is less work, Jean, to say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your bed and walk? And out of his commentary, Jean says, it is not easier to quicken by a word a body which is nearly dead than to forgive sins. In other words, it is much easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say rise up to a paralytic. Now the key to understanding verse 5 for you here is the double use of the word say by our Lord. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Is it less work? Which is less work? Well, if you say to someone, you declare to them your sins are forgiven, you and I have no way to verify if God actually forgives them. There's no way to verify it. But if you say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, it's very easy to validate and verify whether the words work. So which is easier to say? Well, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say take up your pallet and walk. Only a fool says to a paralytic, get up and walk. Or the son of the living God and so what does Jesus do? He tells them that. And it says in verse 6, excuse me, yeah, verse 6, that he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Go home. Interesting. Because in order for this man to go home, he has to pick up the stretcher, and that would require full strength. That would require a full healing so that it's not merely that he's getting slowly better and his nerves are being slowly regenerated. This is a man who is instantly and fully healed to the point of having full strength so that not only can he get up and walk, he can pick up whatever it was that he was carried with, that stretcher, and be able to carry it. And as we talked about earlier, make the long trip home by dark. He has full manly strength instantly 
So here's the point for you and me. Jesus Christ has the power to speak. And by that power alone to bind God himself to the eternal forgiveness of all of our sins. That is declarative forgiveness. This is the declarative power of God that remits sin by declaration. The only question for you is, do you believe that Jesus has that power for you today? Join me in verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. (laughs) Can you see the paralytic? He gets instantly healed. And he picks up the stretcher that it took four men to bring him in on. And he's he's trying to walk past the scribes because the house is so filled with people. And he's like, excuse me. Oh, oh, sorry, pardon. Oh, sorry, touched your hand. Sorry, stepped on your hand there. Oops, coming through. Got to (laughs) go. And they're angry in their hearts at what just happened. (laughs) If Jesus can declare a paralytic healed and he walks out without any deeds of repentance, then he can also do the greater work of by declaring the man's sins forgiven for all eternity by God himself. In forgiveness, Jesus claims to be the man's eternal judge. Please join me back in verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. The Son of Man. The Son of Man is an important three-word term that Jesus uses for himself in which he takes to himself the authority granted in the scriptures to be the judge of all human beings for all time when they stand before God. He alone as the Son of Man, claims full and total authority over every human being ever made to render judgment. And as such here, he declares himself the Son of Man in order that the individual scribes and Pharisees there may understand that he dismisses their judgment of blasphemy against him and calls to himself all judgmental authority against them. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is what this man does. And there's no fear in him. There's no There's no recanting. There's nothing. It's all pedal to the metal work. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And he connects his power as the judge with his power as a priest to declare forgiveness of sins. 
And so he becomes the awesome, judgely, priestly God-man for your faith, for you and for me. That we may have the kind of faith in him that this paralytic does. Of course, great problem for us is we don't really see ourselves as paralytics. But spiritually, we're very much paralytics. One man sums it up this way. Because it's so hard for us. And, and, and sometimes, maybe there are even people in your life right now who are declaring you unfit for God's mercy. And there are people in your life right now who have judged you as unworthy of God's mercy. Well, it matters not if Jesus has declared you forgiven. Listen to what one man says. He says this, Forgiveness is the direct act of God. No human lips dared pronounce it. It was special prerogative of the Almighty. And even should mortal man venture to declare it, he could do so only in the name of Jehovah and by his immediate authorization. But Jesus had spoken in his own name, Son of Man. He had not hinted at being empowered by God to act for him. The scribes were greatly excited. Whispers, ominous head shakings, dark looks, and pious gesticulations of alarm showed that they were ill at ease. Quote, he should have sent him to the priest to present his sin offering and have it accepted. It is blasphemy to speak of, it, of forgiving sins. He is intruding on divine rights. The blasphemer was put to death by stoning. His body hung on a tree and buried with shame. For who can forgive sins but God alone? He goes on to say this. It was the turning point in the life of Jesus. For the accusation of the blasphemy now uttered in the hearts of the scribes present was the beginning of the process which ended on a cross and Jesus knew it. And I merely add one little last detail here for you to marvel at this passage, but it's the only time of all the healings that Jesus ever did that he attaches his own title of Son of Man to the healing and to the forgiveness. Every other time, he used it merely for judgment. So we want to conclude now, and I want to conclude with a couple of things. I want to conclude with a story and some applications. Several weeks ago, when I was preaching, I told you about a notorious prison in America, down in Angola, Louisiana. It's called The Farm. Now, in this prison sits a man who is so criminal that he ought to be dead. He is only let out of his cell on rare occasions. He must have guards next to him all the time. Otherwise, he will be killed. For years, he was the frontline hitman for the Colombian drug cartel. He estimates himself responsible for the killing of hundreds of people from the U.S. all the way down through Colombia. And... He has ordered the carrying out of murders on hundreds more. Now, over a decade ago, he was arrested, and he was tried in a U.S. court, and he was judged, and the sentence against him was 200 consecutive life sentences. 
This man will never get out of jail except in a body bag. The man's wife and all of his children were long ago murdered in revenge killings. What chance of heaven do you think a man like this has? Now, according to the warden, who was a Christian of some renown several years ago, this man trusted in Christ. And a friend was preaching in Angola, explaining Christ's power to declare forgiveness. He didn't know the men who were in the room. But he explained that a man could hypothetically kill hundreds of people and yet be forgiven by the declaration of Jesus Christ that his death on the cross was fully sufficient to atone for even such a man who would murder hundreds of people. Only later was this friend told by the warden that this Colombian hitman was in the room, that years prior to that he had trusted in Christ, and the warden said that this man never, ever once took his eyes off this man as he preached. If Christ can forgive the worst sinner by declarative forgiveness, he can forgive you. He can forgive you. And now a few applications and we'll wrap it up here. I want you to notice that although Jesus forgives, he uses human means. Did you notice it back in verse 2? He uses human means. They brought, him, they brought the paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. He used the means of these four men and their faith in bringing the paralytic to Jesus. So therefore, let us not be fearful and not question whether God wants to use our faith in bringing someone else to the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what happened here. And every single one of the gospel accounts says it the exact same way. Seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Secondly, recognize in your own life and in humanity in general that spiritual healing is more important than physical healing. Jesus forgives the man and afterward heals him physically because the greater need in the man's life was to be forgiven of his sins. Now, everybody talks about spiritual healing and they want to lay stones on you and they want to wave their arms over your body and do all kinds of mantras and all kinds of things. But listen, beloved, there's only one kind of spiritual healing and it's the forgiveness of your sins. It's the greatest spiritual healing there is because it frees you. You're no longer judged by God. You're loved by God. You're his child. You're forgiven. You're free. Your status is secure. You are healed. Go live. Third, and this is particularly to my brothers in ministry and to all of you who take efforts in your families, among your coworkers, neighbors, be sure that whenever you speak for God, it always has opposition. It always has opposition. 
you say a word for God and others will despise you for those sayings, for what you've said. But look at Christ in this passage. Look at the power of this man. He says the most profound thing a man can say. Your sins are forgiven. He declares forgiveness and binds God in heaven to this man's forgiveness. Most powerful thing a man can say. And he shows no fear. I, you and I don't go that far, nor should we. We don't have that authority. We're not the son of man. But I'll tell you what, we can sure say a lot of things for Christ and be sure that opposition will come, but have no fear. Have no fear. Be bold for this man. And then lastly, Jesus' authority to heal a paralyzed man by a spoken word proves his power to do the greater work to forgive sins by the spoken word. If you get nothing else, take that away. Jesus Christ, by the spoken word, forgives sin. And you can go to him today with everything and have your sin forgiven by his spoken word. Shall we pray? Oh, Father in heaven, the vast riches that forgiveness brings to our souls come to us by the freest of measures. It costs us nothing. It all comes by your power. It is not for the strong. It is for the weak. It is not for the healthy. It is for the sick. It comes to us in our sickness and weakness and heals and makes us so free. How good you are to forgive us by the declared word of the gospel. So we bless you. And thank you. And we praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.